If you have your Bibles, why don't we go to Luke chapter 21 this morning. We'll continue our study where we left off last week in Luke's Gospel. And this morning we're actually going to pick back up uh, there in verse 25 of chapter 21. And we're going to make our way all the way down through the remainder of the chapter. Uh, Verse 37 and 38, the last two verses, basically are just a a simple commentary uh, on... uh, what was taking place so we'll reserve the majority of our comment uh, down through verse 36 just for warning you verse 37 and 38 are rather self-explanatory but they kind of wrap up the chapter but we'll focus our attention on verse 25 through 36 in our exposition and if you're turned there together with me shall we stand out of respect for the scriptures and we'll read our text for our study luke 21 beginning in the 25th verse Jesus says, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. And then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke adds commentary, and in the daytime Jesus was teaching in the temple. But at night he would go out and stay on the mount called Olivet. And then early in the morning all people came to him in the temple to hear him. And Father, we ask as we open up the scriptures this morning, just humbly for the help of your Holy Spirit, that he would be our teacher and our instructor, even as your Spirit inspired the Word of God, we we look to you as the teacher and the author and instructor to give us understanding as to what you meant, every thought, every intent of what we have recorded in the Bible before us this morning. We pray for your spirit to give us an ear to hear what he would say to this part of your church that's assembled and from this portion of Scripture. So bless your word, Lord. Prepare us and speak personally and powerfully to each one of us here. And we ask these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think one of the wisest things that any one of us can do is in life to be prepared for those things that we know are coming. Uh, On occasion, I'm sure every one of us in this room has had the unpleasant experience of sort of being caught unprepared or not ready. And usually it is never good to be caught unprepared and not ready for something. And Jesus shows us here in our verses this morning that there is no area where that is more true than in the arena of spiritual and eternal matters. To be prepared for what's coming and to make sure that we are not caught off guard and unready. It is so important when it becomes a matter of our eternal destiny and spiritual things that are guaranteed to take place that we know and that we be adequately prepared for what is coming. Now remember, in our text this morning, we are now for the third week here in the midst 
of this teaching that Jesus gave, the second longest teaching he gave, often called the Olivet Discourse. And we call it that, of course, you notice at the end of the chapter, we're told that Jesus would teach in the temple in the morning. And then again, because it was Passover season, the city was crowded in Jerusalem. He'd go over to the Mount called Olivet, which was right nearby there. He would spend the night and then come back into the temple area in the morning and be teaching. And this is one of the teachings, obviously, that Jesus gave. It's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. And at this point in the teaching, Jesus, remember, is answering a series of questions that were prompted by his disciples. We have those questions recorded here in Luke 21 as well as in Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13. All three chapters give us the same teaching of Jesus and they add some additional details that the others do not. At this point in our verses we're looking at now in this morning's study, Jesus is answering the particular question asked by his disciples, which was this, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's specifically what Jesus is addressing in these verses of the many questions he was asked. They asked him, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the end of the age? And that's what he's answering here in front of us. Remember, in our last verse we looked at, Jesus had just declared in verse 24 that Jerusalem, he said, would be trampled by the Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. And we talked about how the times of the Gentiles refers to a season historically when Gentile or non-Jewish people, that's what Gentiles refer to, anyone who's of non-Jewish descent, when Gentile people and nations would be controlling the city of Jerusalem, which is really like the geographic centerpiece for God's eternal puzzle for all time in history. And that there is this set period of time in history when Jerusalem would be under the control of Gentile nations for a period of time in history which must be completed and fulfilled. And then that time of the Gentiles would then come to a close. And during this time of the Gentiles, when different Gentile people are controlling the city of Jerusalem itself, once the fulfillment of that period takes place, there then will come a shift in God's work and God's plan on the earth, it will initiate, it seems, the Bible tells us, the onset of what is often called the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel, referred to in Daniel 9 and other places, which really is one last seven-year time period where God will uniquely and specifically begin to work once again among the nation of Israel, his chosen people. We often call the 70th week of Daniel as well the time of the tribulation. Again, the tribulation being a last seven-year period, a time that I personally believe will begin at the removing or the rapture of the church when Jesus snatches away the church to meet the Lord in the air. It will then begin the onset of this seven-year period of tribulation on the earth where God uniquely works among Israel and at the same time, where you will have the unveiling and revealing of the Antichrist and ultimately God will be pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world for that seven-year time period for their rejection of his son Jesus Christ. And at the end of that seven-year period, it will then culminate in the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ with his church, with the saints, you and I, who come back with Jesus to the earth, he touches down upon the earth and he sets up his kingdom there to rule and reign together with us upon the earth for a thousand years, which is often called the kingdom age, which then culminates ultimately in the new Jerusalem coming down in what we call eternity future. And yet this period of the time of the Gentiles is something that will take place until that time period is fulfilled and these events then begin to escalate and unfold. Now, as we said last time, different Gentile nations have really been trampling and controlling Jerusalem for centuries. Uh, the beginning with the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Arabs and the Turks and even the Brits. People have controlled Jerusalem. 
until a time period not too long ago in 1967 when a major shift took place historically and spiritually when the Jewish people, now back in their homeland, regained control of the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, we know that the Temple Mount itself is still under Gentile control. So, as I said, it seems we are in a critical window, if we can use that term, a critical window in history like no other time when the Jews are predominantly back in control of Jerusalem. Not completely yet. Not completely, but predominantly back in control of Jerusalem. So it seems to me this time of the Gentiles is very quickly coming to a close and the time clock is about to expire, which means we are extremely close to the culmination of the things that will take place when this time of the Gentiles comes to a closure. And Jesus now talks about what to expect as the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. He begins by telling us in verse 25 that there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. He says men's hearts will be failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be Shaken. So Jesus tells us that at that time, dramatic and cataclysmic events, terrifying events, will be coming upon the earth at that time. The Old Testament prophets speak about this in various places of these terrifying things coming upon the earth in that hour. Isaiah describes it in chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. Isaiah says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp and every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as in a woman in childbirth and they will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it for the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine and I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity and I will halt the arrogance of the proud and lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So terrifying times are coming upon the earth. The prophet Joel and the prophet Zechariah speak of similar things. Again, as Jesus describes these cataclysmic events, the earth, the powers of the heavens being shaken. Again, we have to remember Colossians chapter 1 tells us that in Jesus, it says there, Colossians 1, it says, in Jesus, all things consist. The NIV says all things hold together which tells us something important to realize, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the heavens and the earth, Lord of all, is right now holding together everything on the earth, and more than that, everything in the universe. Every single atom that exists in our body, in the created order, in the entire heavens and earth and the universe, Jesus is holding all those things together. He's personally controlling what Jesus mentions here. He's personally controlling the sun, the moon, the stars, every asteroid, every meteorite, every planet that's traveling around at incredible speeds around the universe. Jesus is steering and navigating all of that, keeping it all completely under control. Every big asteroid and every meteorite Jesus is steering and navigating all that making sure it doesn't come crashing into our earth he's controlling all those things and yet the Bible tells us here that there's coming a time it says here when the powers of the heavens it says will be shaken verse 26 in other words all listen all Jesus has to do when the time comes is really just to let control a little bit and just to give a little supernatural shake 
to the powers of everything that he's controlling and he just gives a little supernatural shake and when he does, everything begins to go out of order. The sun, the moon, the stars, all these things, great cataclysmic events beginning, as he says here, to unfold upon the earth. Again, if you study Revelation chapter 6 through 18, it describes a lot of these things that will be taking place from chapter 6 through 18 there in the book of Revelation. Things like 100-pound hailstones falling from the sky and striking men. I don't think you want to get hit with one of those. You've been struck with a fly ball in the outfield with a baseball. You know, that's, that's nothing. 100-pound hailstone. But these are the things that, again, when Jesus just takes his hands off, of controlling everything and he allows it then to come to pass upon the earth the powers will be shaken the various labor pains again that he mentioned back in verse 11 earthquakes and famines and pestilence and and these kind of things the, the indication is they will just become increasingly severe all the more in that tribulation period Interesting, Jesus mentions in our verse here as well in verse 25 the sea and the waves Roaring as these cataclysmic events are happening. The sea and the waves roaring. Again, maybe a reference to things like great tidal waves and tsunamis as incredible, powerful earthquakes take place as, again, the book of Revelation describes will happen during this time period in the tribulation where maybe a great asteroid or meteorite comes plunging into the ocean in a great tidal wave. The sea and the waves roaring in ways like never before where it causes, verse 26, it says, men's hearts to fail from fear as they see the things that are happening. So again, Jesus describes how these dramatic events are happening. And then he talks here about how that will have an effect upon people. He says, on earth, there will be distress and perplexity among the nations. When you look at that term in the original language, it speaks of feeling strangled or trapped or it could be literally translated, men feel like there is no way out. There's no way out. There's no way of escape. Conditions and circumstances among the nations will become so bad and so dismal that people will begin to feel so utterly hopeless and trapped, they will realize, Jesus is saying, they'll realize there is just no way out anymore. It's inevitable what's coming upon the earth and men will fully recognize we can't fix it, not through politics, not through planning, not through our nuclear arsenal. There's nothing that we can do at that moment because such cataclysmic events will be happening. Men will just begin to feel the inevitable tragedies are coming and there's no way out. There's no way to escape anymore. There is no hope in that desperation of that hour, Jesus says men's hearts will be failing and the language indicates literally to cease breathing. This almost indicates cardiac arrest. That's so terrifying, so horrific, so scary will those hours be that people will literally at times be just having heart attacks and dropping dead from the fear and the stress and the anxiety of the incredible all striking things that are happening upon the earth. Well, verse 27, Jesus says, and then, after those things, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So these dramatic events, these difficult things happening upon the earth, notice, during the tribulation, will precede the visible literal return of Jesus Christ back to the earth. Jesus says, then they, that is they who are still on the earth, then they, he says, will clearly see his return. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Jesus says they will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. The indication being that when Jesus returns, it will be obvious. It'll be completely evident. He's trying to indicate here, as well as the Bible and other places, every eye will see him, that when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, there will be no question for anybody what's going on. It will be totally evident what's taking place when the Son of God comes back to this earth. Nobody will have any question about what's happening. 
everybody will know exactly what's happening when the Son of God comes breaking through the clouds in power and great glory returning to this earth that he created. Interesting that Jesus says not only coming in power and great glory, but he says coming, it says, in a cloud. Now again, what's that a reference to? We're not certain. A glory cloud? It could even, I think, be a reference to a cloud of witnesses, as the Bible speaks of at times. That is all the resurrected saints, all the saints of God, like a cloud of witnesses returning with them. Again, when we look at Revelation 19, which describes the second coming of Jesus back to this earth, it tells us that Jesus comes riding on a white horse as a glorified king breaking through the sky. And it says that you and I, the saints, are returning together with him, riding on a horse coming back in power and great glory, returning together with him, maybe as that cloud of witnesses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, you might want to jot in your notes, refers to this in the Old Testament. It says, Behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. So this was very familiar language to the Jews as Jesus now speaks of himself as the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And again, please note, this is not a reference to the rapture whereby Jesus snatches away or pulls his saints away from the earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 describes Jesus coming in the air. It doesn't say he comes and touches upon the earth. The rapture and the second coming and return of Jesus Christ are two separate events the Bible speaks of. In the rapture where Jesus catches away the saints of the church, it says that he snatches us away and it says we're caught up and we meet the Lord in the air and we're ever with the Lord. What verse 27 is referring to is the second coming of Jesus, not for his church but the coming of Jesus with his church returning in power and great glory at the end of that seven year period tribulation to overthrow the antichrist to touch down upon the earth and to set up then his kingdom upon this earth for a thousand years and in verse 28 Jesus tells us now when these things begin to happen he says look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So in the midst of this, Jesus now gives here, notice, the first exhortation or the first instruction in light of his coming and the end of the age. And the language here, please take note, is very insightful. Jesus has told us in the prior verses, after these things, that is, after the times of the Gentiles and after all the dramatic events, verse 25 and 26, things happening upon the earth. Jesus said, after those things, he says, verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming back to the earth. After all the dramatic events take place, then they, who are still on the earth, will see the Son of Man coming back to the earth in power and great glory. But notice in verse 28, he says, but when these things begin... Not after these things happen. When these things begin, referring to all the events of the birth pangs and labor things, the increase of things like international warfare and earthquakes and famines and pestilence, he says when these things begin to happen, notice when they begin, he says, you look up for your redemption draws nigh. When those events happen, they will see the Son of Man returning to the earth in power and great glory. But when these things just begin, as soon as they begin to happen, Jesus says, as soon as they're starting and you're starting to see the onset of them, he says, you, not they, you, different category of people, you look up because your redemption, Jesus says, is now drawing near. I think Jesus here in verse 28 is speaking to a different category of people giving an exhortation to his followers, to believers. Not to those who will be left behind still on this earth during the time of the tribulation who will see the visible return in power and great glory of Jesus Christ coming back. But I believe Jesus here, he's not talking now to they, he's talking to you, to a different category. 
to believers. And he says, you, when you just begin to see these things happening, the labor pains, then he says, as a follower of me, he says, you should begin to look up. Because he says, your redemption draws nigh. And the word redemption in the Bible is always used as a term to refer to the events that happen in the life of a believer. Again, Romans 8, verse 23 says that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our spirit and soul has already been redeemed. But we're still in this old bag of bones that's got a sinful nature and it's sick and it's falling apart like a tent. And we're waiting for the completion of our redemption. That is the redemption of this body to get the glorified eternal body and for God to finish the process as he brings us into the eternal realm. So I believe here that you find Jesus giving a exhortation challenging believers, you and I as his disciples, to be looking up and anticipating the rapture, the catching away of the saints to meet the Lord in the air and the completion of our redemption. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed, transformed, as we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. As you observe our world, and as we look at what the Bible says prophetically will unfold in all the events that God describes, listen, I think we have every reason to believe that the catching away of the saints, the rapture of the church, can happen at any hour, at any moment. I'd be more than thankful it happens before the Bible study's done. <laughs> There's to be caught away. There are a few hassles I would not have to think about this week. There are a few things we wouldn't have to worry about if the Lord would catch us away. And the Bible teaches us that. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will ride first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord that's the hope of the child of God that's the blessed hope of the church the catching away of the saints the harpazo the snatching away the Greek literally indicates to grab someone by the back of the shirt and, and to snatch them back to abruptly snatch them away and listen, from what I see scripturally, there is nothing left that needs to be fulfilled prophetically for the rapture of the church to take place. There are things that are still working themselves out for the second coming of Jesus Christ and the times of the tribulation and the revelation of the Antichrist. But listen, there is nothing that I see prophetically left that needs to be fulfilled it's all been fulfilled for Jesus Christ to snatch us out of here and to bring the end time show events to a complete fulfillment here upon this earth. That's a glorious hope. And that's why Jesus says, listen, when you just begin to see these things starting to happen, they're just the indication of what, he says, when you begin to see these things, it's time to look up because your redemption, it's drawing very near. At any moment, it's imminent, Jesus says. And that blessed hope of the coming of Jesus really should cause us to be doing that, to be expectantly looking, to be living with anticipation, waiting and watching for any moment the Lord to snatch us off of this earth and bring us into his presence and glory. I anticipate on watching all the events on earth from the mezzanine. If you want to plan to be here, you're free to believe that. And don't worry about it. When you realize you're mistaken, I'll explain it on the way up one more time, okay? And you'll be thankful the Lord got you out of here before all hell began to break loose on the earth. We have something, the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 2 that we should be looking for the glorious appearing and the blessed hope of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the hope we have that he's going to snatch us away before his wrath is poured out upon us. It's a time of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth and because of that blessed hope jesus says looking up for your redemption again he says lift up your heads he says there lift up your heads again maybe if you uh, can think of times when if, if 
you know, you were discouraged and people say, well, you know, well, don't hang your head down, man. Come on, lift up your head. Don't hang your head down. As Christians, understanding the time we live in, Jesus says, listen, I know it's hard on the earth, but lift up your head. You don't have to be depressed and despairing and discouraged. You know the blessed hope you have. You're going to get out of here soon. Now people can say, oh, you're just an escapist. You bet I am. <laughs> and I have no problem with that. I'm an escapist, right? I plan on escaping as soon as possible. I want to see a last revival. I want to see people that get saved. But I don't want to stay here any longer than I have to. This earth isn't my home. And it's hard. And Jesus says, listen, Christian, are you depressed and discouraged because life on this earth is hard and this fallen sin? Listen, he says, lift up your head. Time's almost over. Lift up your head. Look up. Your redemption draws. You've got a reason to not be depressed. Your redemption draws nigh, Jesus says. Soon enough it will be over. And 1 Thessalonians 4, interesting, regarding the rapture, as it speaks about it, it tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, the last verse after the description of the rapture of the church, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. What words? With the words that we're going to be caught away. And sometimes as Christians, we need that reminder because we get discouraged and weary in this world. And Jesus says, look, the hope of the rapture, the removing of the saints, that comforts a discouraged Christian to know, hey, I can endure, I can carry on because I'm not going to have to live this out on life on earth forever. That there's something beyond that and it's coming very soon. Well, Jesus goes on, verse 29, it says, to tell them a parable, saying, look at the fig tree and all the trees. And when they are already budding, he says, you know, it's evident for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. Now again, all around the area there of the Mount of Olives, there would be fig trees. And Jesus, even possibly in his teaching, calls attention to these fig trees that would blossom. Maybe he's even pointing to one. And they understood what that meant, those who lived there, as they saw fig trees blossoming. Again, the fig tree is, is not an evergreen. It loses leaves and it rebuds every year seasonally. And among all trees, the fig tree is known to be one of the last trees to blossom, usually in late spring. So as they saw the fig tree blossom in late spring, they always knew that indicated that that season of spring, because usually it was late spring, as they saw the fig tree blossom, they knew that season is about to be over and summer is right around the corner because usually the fig tree was the last tree to blossom at the end of spring, which then would quickly bring in the onset of a new season of summer. And it's budding forth and blossoming indicated a soon coming transition. That one season was about to end and a brand new season was on the horizon and a change was coming. That's what Jesus means when he says, when you see that budding, you know, verse 30, yourselves that summer is now near. He says, you know these things naturally. That when the fig tree blossoms, it's a definite indicator summer's coming soon. Then by way of application, he says, so you also, when you see these things happening, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus says same principle can be applied spiritually. In the same way, the blossoming of the fig tree indicated a change of season and that summer was near. Jesus says also, when you see these things happening, we can know when we see these signs he has given to us, we can know when we see these signs blossoming forth all around us that the return of Jesus is very near that the kingdom of God is very near. The question becomes, what does Jesus mean when he says, when you see these things happening? It could be a reference to all the things he's been describing in this chapter, the culmination of all the gathered things that he's spoken about, just generally when you see all these things happening. Or it could possibly also more specifically be that Jesus is referring, when he says these things to the nation of Israel specifically. It is interesting, take notice, that this parable Jesus gives was about a fig tree. It was a parable of a fig tree blossoming. And we know in the Bible that the fig tree is often a symbol or a type of the nation of Israel. 
It tells us in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, that God says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. Again, Jeremiah 8 and 24 and 29, Joel chapter 1 and Micah 7 and Nahum 3, these are all passages that refer to Israel as a fig tree. So the fig tree in the scriptures is a type of the nation of Israel. So I believe it could be very possible that Jesus, when he said this, had in mind specifically the nation of Israel as he talked about the blossoming of the fig tree. Now, if Jesus is speaking about the nation of Israel as the fig tree blossoming here, that makes what Jesus is saying very pointed and very picturesque because we know historically in 70 AD, Jerusalem was overrun and overtaken in 70 AD by the Romans. And when they came in, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, as Jesus talked about in a prior section, what did they do? They scattered the Jews and the Jewish people were dispersed all around the world and they became displaced and they lost their homeland. And they were pushed out of their homeland from that time period. But yet, God in his word predicted that he would one day what? Bring Israel, bring the Jews back to their homeland and that he would rebirth the nation. Ezekiel chapter 35, 36, 37 describe how the land would again begin to blossom, how those dead bones would come back to life and it was describing how both the land and the Jewish people would be rebirthed and would blossom again and that God would bring his people back into their land once again. And for many years, even you might know if you were around prior to that time, that biblical prophecy was scoffed. Because people would look at the land of what was then called Palestine and they would say, look, these prophets, they can't be possible. And then you get into this crazy idea, well, maybe the church is spiritual Israel. And for many years, people scoffed at the idea that the Jews could actually be back in this distorted, ruined, horribly cared for piece of real estate there that we now call the nation of Israel because they were scattered all around the world. And yet what happens? Because usually a nation without a homeland, and this is, we need to understand the reason why. Usually a nation without a homeland, within a matter of a few hundred years, loses its national identity. A people without a homeland very quickly lose their national identity. It's a sociological pattern. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you have met an Amalekite? Have you ever met one? When's the last time that you, again, met a, uh, you know, a, a, a Babylon? We don't. When people don't have a homeland, they lose their national identity. It happens all throughout history. Yet, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, for 2,000 years, being scattered all around the earth, retained their national identity without a homeland. And in May 1948, what happened? The nation of Israel was rebirthed in a day. In a day, literally. Exactly what Isaiah chapter 66 said would happen. In a day. The nation of Israel was rebirthed in 1948 and they got back to their homeland, retained their national identity, and less than 20 years later regained their own capital city. Listen, we need to realize, hear me, that is a sociological miracle. No people historically have ever been able to do such a thing. Within a few hundred years without a homeland, they lose their national identity. Israel had no homeland for almost 2,000 years. They retained their national identity. Why? I'll tell you one reason why. Because God's real. And the Bible said that God would bring them back to their land. You know one of the greatest miracles that exists on the earth? It's the nation of Israel. It's the Jewish people back in their homeland. The fig tree re-blossoming, coming back to birth. It's an absolute miracle what God has done. So it's very possible Jesus is speaking prophetically here in the re-blossoming of the fig tree. It's possible he's referring to the fact that he knew that not only would they be dispersed, but that they at the right season and time historically would come back. The nation would be rebirthed and the nation of Israel 
and the Jewish people would blossom once again. Now, if that's the case, it makes what Jesus is saying here very, very interesting. Very interesting, because he says, when you see these things budding, you yourselves know, he says, it's summer, and when you see these things happening, maybe the reblossoming of Israel, know that the kingdom of God is near. Question. Who and what generation has seen the fig tree, if it's Israel he's referring to, who has seen the fig tree reblossom? Well, it's the generation that in the last 60 plus years, many of whom are still on this planet right now, that's the generation that's seen that. And Jesus says, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Verse 32, assuredly, I say to you, this generation, what generation? The generation that's seen these things, very likely. What generation? He says, that generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. And the question, of course, then becomes is debated. Well, how long is a generation then? Because we want to know. Well, you know. We want to set times and dates, although Jesus says we can't. What, how long is a generation? Well, we can't be chronologically dogmatic because the Bible defines generations anywhere ranging from 40 years to 100 years. And what we also don't know is what would God consider the rebutting of the fig tree of Israel? Was it in 1948 when they got their land back? Or is it in 1967 when they regained their capital city and really strengthened their identity? Uh, again, the interesting thing is Israel has blossomed and this generation has seen it. This generation has seen it. Now, it is true that that word generation Jesus uses can sometimes also be translated race or nation. It's the word genos. And it is possible that that term there could be a reference, genos, to a race of people, referring to the Jewish people. And it could be true that Jesus was saying in verse 32, I say to you that this generation, this genos, or race of Jewish people, will by no means pass away till all things take place. Speaking of how Jesus says the Jewish people, once they come back to life, they will be supernaturally preserved. And no matter what anybody tries to do to them, in the last days, I will supernaturally and miraculously preserve them until all things take place. Well, if you're like me, you go, okay, so which one is it? Is he talking about the Jewish people that God will preserve them until everything takes place? Or is he talking about the generation that sees the reblossoming of Israel will be the generation that sees the return of Jesus Christ? Well, I think it could be either. Or I think it could be both. Quite honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I think we're going to have to wait and see. The interesting thing either way is Jesus says those who see these things will be those who are around till all things take place. What's all things? Well, it culminates in Jesus coming back. So we're in good standing either way. We're in a critical hour either way because this is a very interesting time in which we live in. So Jesus says, verse 33, heaven and earth, he says, will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. So he promises his words in all matters are reliable and they're extremely credible. Unlike the physical aspects of creation, heaven and earth, which the Bible tells us will pass away, and that's hard because we look at earth and heaven and we look at the physical aspects of creation and they seem so stable, so constant. It's hard for us to imagine the heavens and the earth disappearing and dissolving, yet the Bible tells us all this physical creation, it will be dissolved. And Jesus says, though those things will be done away with, he says, yet my word, that's what's enduring. That's what's lasting and permanent and credible. Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. See, everything that we hear said or promised by people in life can potentially change. Have you noticed that? Or a promise is made and people don't follow through. Everything people say, it can change, it cannot be fulfilled, it doesn't come to pass, it never happens, but not so with the words of Jesus. Everything Jesus says is credible and reliable and it must come to pass. It's eternally enduring. Now that indication to us should help us to realize such 100% permanently reliable words should affect the way that we relate to and respond towards the words of Jesus more than anything else. Hey, this morning, ask yourself, 
Whose words, whose ideas are you basing your life on? Your own? And what your work people tell you? What the world's saying on the news? What your friends are telling you? Who are you listening to? I recommend listen to Jesus because that's 100% reliable. That's absolutely accurate in every sense of the word. Well, Jesus says in relation to these things, here's the exhortation now. He says, but take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life that they, they come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So Jesus gives here really now this at the end of a teaching, the exhortation. Here's the exhortation in light of his soon coming, in light of the end of the age, which is becoming very evident to us. Jesus here gives a strong challenge to be ready, to be prepared, to not be caught off guard so that the day of the Lord would not come upon us unexpectedly, he says. You know, sadly, Jesus says, and the Bible shows in other places, sadly, most people who dwell on the earth, the day of the Lord is going to come upon them unexpectedly. And they're going to be caught off guard. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 describes this. He says, concerning times and seasons, you have no need that I write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, Christian, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Again, because the Bible gives us instruction and because Jesus says we have understanding how to discern the times and the seasons that we're living in, the Bible tells us and Jesus encourages us here to live accordingly. Jesus says here in verse 34, listen, take heed to yourselves in light of these things and what you can see. The hour you're living is take heed to yourself. The idea is to pay close attention in regards to your own personal condition that you and I should be paying very careful attention to our own spiritual and moral condition of our heart, understanding that we all have the capacity to begin to fall asleep, to begin to enter into carnal and fleshly and sinful habits and lifestyles as we wait for the return of the Lord. He says the reason, verse 34, is so that your hearts are not weighed down or hindered, he says, with things like carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life. So Jesus warns, listen, I'm lovingly telling you as you're waiting for my return, pay attention. Keep your heart in check, he says, so that you don't become weighed down. The indication is that we don't begin to experience things in our lives that hinder our spiritual progress. And he mentions what can hinder our spiritual progress. Carousing, which means excessive partying. It means living a pleasure-seeking life where everything is about we got to have fun. Life's about entertainment. We always need to be entertaining ourselves and thrill-seeking. Jesus says be careful of that. He warns of drunkenness, that is the excessive indulgence of alcohol, which impairs our ability to think critically and correctly. And it leads to addictive bondage and behaviors that ensnare us. And he mentions the cares of this life, that is just the stress and anxieties of being concerned about material things that can consume and control us. Jesus says these problematic things can become traps and snares that hinder a healthy relationship with the Lord for all of us, and we need to guard against them. You know, it's interesting, even just in study this week, taking note again how sad it is that in five of the churches that Paul the Apostle wrote to, he took the time in five of the churches he wrote to to have to instruct Christians about the incompatibility and the inconsistency of being a Christian and drunkenness. Five times. Five different churches. Paul said, look, a Christian and drunkenness. These are inconsistent. This is incompatible. 
And the Bible repeats that to us. Jesus warned us in the parable of the soils of the danger of having a heart that remembers like the heart with all the thorns and the weeds. And Jesus says the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life, it chokes out the word. So we never become mature Christians. Why? Because the cares of this life consume us and we're so caught up in the spirit of materialism and maintaining all of our stuff that we're choked out from spiritual maturity and progress in our lives. It seems the weight of this world can dampen our sense of spiritual sensitivity. And how do you escape that? It's hard, I know. How do we avoid those snares? Well, look what Jesus says in verse 36. Do you want to avoid being weighed down and snared? How do we do that? Well, Jesus is simple. He says, watch and pray always. Watch and pray always. He says, stay alert, stay awake, be like a soldier in a combat zone on enemy lines, and pray. Stay in fellowship with God. Be in communication. You know, prayer keeps my spirit in touch and in tune with the dimension of the Spirit of God. So Jesus says, pray, and pray always. Be serious about prayer in the hour that you live in. Interesting, verse 36, he tells us that you may be counted worthy to escape all things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. No, God desires for us to escape at all times from wrath or judgment. Even as the early disciples were told, hey, when you see judgment coming on Jerusalem, get out of the city, escape. In the same way, Jesus desires for us to escape the coming judgment that is going to come on this earth at the end of the age. And I'll tell you this, the only way to escape and be counted worthy to stand before Jesus Christ is one way. And that is to recognize as a sinner your condition before God and submit and surrender to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords now. And by putting faith in Jesus Christ, allowing God to make you and I righteous in our standing before a holy God that we might be worthy to stand before the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because for the Christian, the Bible promises in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 that God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus is who delivers us from the wrath to come. See, this is critical. There's only one way to be counted worthy to escape. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. We must be in right relationship with Jesus. It's really very simple. It's an assurance to those who know him and it's an exhortation to those who are refusing him, who have rejected him. John tells us in chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hey, in relation to that, can I ask you this morning, are you ready for his coming? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for how it speaks into our lives, the things that we need to hear, how it reaches out to us in the depth of our soul and speaks to us. And Father, I pray for those of us who are believers that you would afresh by your Spirit awaken our senses to the reality of the days that we live in. Help us, Lord. You know how lethargic our hearts can become and how the world dampens our spiritual fire. Would you, Lord, pour out your spirit and fire afresh upon us. Awaken us, Lord. And Father, we pray for those who may not know you that your spirit would show them their need of salvation and that they would let you, Jesus, save them from their sin in this very hour.